Thanks for spending time with Fusion Community Church through our podcast. These can be accessed anytime through iTunes or on our website, fusioncommunity.church. We hope you enjoy today's message from Pastor Andrew Fetter. So, hey, uh, when, you, when you open up the New Testament, it starts with four books that give us the gospel narratives of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What immediately follows is the book of Acts, which Acts then covers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really cover the three years of, of Jesus' ministry with a little bit sprinkled in about his birth. The book of Acts covers 30 years, three decades of the origin and the, the birth of the church. And, uh, and then after that, after the book of Acts, we have a number of letters written by Paul that kind of capture and unpack, as well as letters from others, uh, unpack what took place in the book of Acts. Kind of gives us a little more background and context and the lessons that were learned and what was being shared. And, uh, and, and really, there's a central focus in the New Testament of the missionary journeys of Paul, the gospel spreading to the known world at that time. And, and, and the question that kind of pops up is, well, how did Paul do that? Like, he's got this message about Jesus as the Messiah. How, how does he go into a, a city, a, a location that is completely... Uh, just completely enamored with Roman and Greek culture and their religious views and idolatry and, and crazy ideas about polytheism. Like, how does, how does he even start those conversations? Um, well, you know, if they'd had a Walmart 2,000 years ago, maybe he would have started there, but they didn't. And what we find in the context of the New Testament is oftentimes the first place Paul went was people like himself in the Jewish synagogue. That was the gathering place for Jews in that community. And in many cities, Paul would start just there. He would go to that place because after all, the synagogue would be a place where, where Hebrew men and women would be honestly searching for God, seeking what's true about the God of Israel, and waiting in great expectation for the Messiah to arrive. And that's what Paul's telling them is the Messiah's here. He's already been here, and we crucified him. And I was just as guilty as anybody. I, I, I imprisoned and, and, and signed off on the death of those who followed him until I met him, till I saw him, till I, till I heard his voice, and everything in my life was changed. And so that's kind of the message that Paul's going in with. And as you can imagine, how does the synagogue in Ephesus respond? Because this is his strategy in Ephesus, and we're reading the book of Ephesians. Well, pretty much like every other city, Paul's immediately met with harsh rejection at the synagogue. They don't want to hear about Jesus. They don't want to hear about a Messiah that was a carpenter in Nazareth that was crucified on a Roman cross, that, that supposedly rose from the grave again. They, they, don't want to, they want to hear a king. They want to hear a champion. They want to hear a warrior. They want to hear a David and a Moses. They want to hear about success and power, and authority. The idea of a personal relationship with a crucified Savior is not appealing to them. Well, Dr. Luke captures this event as, as the Apostle Paul goes into the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 18 and 19, and amazing things begin to happen. Over the course of this series, we're working our way through one book of Ephesians each week. Today, we arrive at chapter 3, and so far in each chapter, we're discovering that through the words of Paul, he's giving us shifts we need to make in our lives, to experience the promise Jesus gave us in John 10.10, 10, that, that he came, Jesus came to give us life and give it more abundantly. The book of Ephesians is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote back to the people that, that lived in and around Ephesus that made up the churches in that city. Historians tell us there were probably somewhere around 200 meeting points at the point that Paul writes the letter to the church in Ephesus. 200 different microchurches within living rooms and households and community locations. And so today as we arrive at chapter 3, so far in each chapter we've seen these shifts take place. Now, the book of Ephesians, is it doesn't really tell us much at all about what happened when Paul was in Ephesus. It's him writing back to people he already knew, people he already had a relationship with, giving them direction. It's in the book of Acts we find the logistics of what took place 
when Paul was there in Ephesus. We see the chronological historical account. Now, the Apostle Paul was Jewish. He was Hebrew. He was Hebrew ethnically, but also religiously. And he was groomed from a very young age with with training and education and preparation to someday possibly be a religious leader within the Jewish faith. And he sure, he became that. He, He served in that role. Paul was also unique in that not only was he Jewish, he was also a Roman citizen. And so both in Roman circles and Jewish circles, Paul had a lot of respect until his faith shifted that Jesus was the Messiah promised by God throughout the entire prophet's and Old Testament books of the Bible. In his ministry, when he would travel, he would often start with the people like him, trying to build that common bond in the same starting place of looking for a a Savior. But consistently, when he would begin to talk about salvation in Jesus and no one else, they would show him the door. The same happened in Ephesus. He was rejected by his own people, but God was opening another door that would push Paul outward from just a focus on the Jews to Gentiles, and Gentiles are everybody else every other skin color, every other ethnicity, everybody that isn't Jewish. And it's amazing what begins to take place. Luke tells us the story in Acts chapter 19, starting in verse verse 8. As he arrived in Ephesus, he says, Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message, and publicly speaking against the way. What does that mean? Well, in the earliest days for, for followers of Jesus, they referred to themselves as followers of the way, not Christians. That came about later. But they called themselves followers of the way, going back to Jesus' words, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They were following the way and the life of Jesus. And their faith and, and, and their, their lifestyles were influenced more greatly by Jesus than anything else. And so Paul's in the synagogue and he's speaking about the way of Jesus and people are publicly speaking against him, arguing with him. So verse 9, Luke says next, So Paul left the synagogue, taking the believers with him, the few that he had had reached since arriving in Ephesus. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This is the first time in church history where the church actually rents space in order to gather together. The, the, The church is in a rental This went on for the next two years so that people, get this, people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord because of the ministry that was happening in and around Ephesus. Now, when we think of the Apostle Paul, uh, a lot of times we kind of think about the impact that he had, right? The big picture kind of stuff that that Paul impacted church history. He he impacted human history. We're still talking about the words he wrote in the Bible 2,000 years later on the other side of the planet. Paul's words shape our theology, our understanding of God and salvation and grace. But often when we just think about Paul like this, the big impact he had, we neglect to really see who he was. We neglect to see the small, personal, specific focus he had on discipling other people. Because throughout the text of the New Testament, we only have a few places, a few sentences that unpack a little more detail about who he was. I mean, isn't it true that that for us as human beings, it's so much easier to think about or focus on what people have done rather than who they are? Like, it's kind of a murky question, isn't it? And whether we're talking about the Apostle Paul or someone in your family, someone in your life, you know, someone that, that played a pivotal role in your life or, or a prominent figure in history, we tend to kind of run to talk about what they've done with their life, what they've produced, what they've accomplished, or, or this word success, the success that they've had. We often don't talk about who they were because so many of those like big people in history, we didn't know them personally. So all we've got to go on is what they accomplished. Just last week, I was listening to an interview on a podcast with John Maxwell. 
Uh, John Maxwell, for, for about three decades, was a pastor. Uh, his dad was a pastor. He was a pastor. But then God all of a sudden put a shift in his life to take what he had learned about leadership from the scriptures and from his own experience and kind of pivot to make it available to help develop leaders, not only in the U.S., but across the world. People were responding to what he had to say, and he believed God was a part of it. And so many people since then have looked at John's life and said, man, you know what? This guy has had incredible success in ministry. He's had incredible success in the business world. And this interviewer asks, says, John, how do you define success? How would you define the word success? It's a good question. Maybe you've wrestled with it before, maybe not. We have a tendency, I think, in our human capacity to kind of immediately imagine the things that would show to the world we're successful. The things we've bought, the things we've done, the place we live, the education we have, the plaques on the wall, the trophies, the places we've traveled, our social media pictures. Like We have a tendency to kind of look at those things as the, the evidence of success. And I love how, how John answers this question. And he says, he says, about 30 years ago, this is a, the definition that I've kind of tried to live my life by regarding success. He says this, when the people who know you the best like you the most. Isn't that good? When the people that know you best like you the most. This means success has nothing to do with effort or ability or talent or skill. It doesn't have to do with productivity at all, really. John's saying the only success that really matters in life is connected to who you are. And those who are closest to you know who you are. It's easy to kind of put on a a mask and, and present like John Maxwell. I mean, he's on a stage. He speaks. He teaches. He writes books. There's a lot of people that have no idea who he is, but they would say he's a great man. And John says, I chased that for a while, but I'm not interested in chasing that anymore. I want the people that, that, I, that I want there by my bedside at the end of my life to like me the most. But, but what's also great about this is it means we don't have to compare ourselves to anybody else on the planet. We don't have to try to aspire to be anybody else or do what they've done or accomplish what they've accomplished because this definition of success is one every single person on the planet can reach. It's not about how many assets we hold. It's how much we're willing to give of ourselves and the kind of integrity we want to live with. All of us can reach this definition. Whether we live in the United States, the most blessed financial nation in the history of humanity, or somewhere else in the world with far less. Because if you try to compare yourself to the Apostle Paul, you're not gonna, none of us are going to measure up very well, right? He traveled the world. He told people about Jesus. He was arrested, beaten, put in prison. At one point, they actually think he was beaten so bad that he died. And, and the, the followers of the way gathered around and prayed for him, and then he started breathing again. It's hard to find common ground with a world changer like the Apostle Paul. But when we come across verses here that we can quickly read past and not even see the detail, the small personal decisions Paul made, then we could say, oh, okay, I can emulate that. I can wrap my mind around that. I can, I can be motivated by that in who he was. And it's right there. We just read by it two little words. It says, in the hall of Tyrannus, the lecture hall, where he began to, to teach and instruct people, he was there for two years. Two years. The apostle Paul, the guy that, that, that traveled the world and told people about Jesus, all of a sudden, he chooses to put roots down for two years with people in the city of Ephesus. And he's just like, whoever's going to come today is, is who I'm going to meet with. And different people came different days over the course of two years. But Paul was focused on discipling people in the way. There were some that were already believers. There were some that were new believers. There were some that were not yet believers. He didn't care. He was just there every day for two years 
nurturing relationships and having dialogue and conversation about the truth of God's word, that's something we can follow, we can put into place ourselves. In fact, uh, uh, tomorrow night is our next discipleship rally, and, and our disciple maker groups and discipleship rally, these are, these are platforms for us to sit down together in smaller pockets and, and move from, mo- from rows to circles and talk about our faith, talk about what we're struggling with, talk about where, where we see God active. That's what they're designed for. And tomorrow night, uh, in person, Tuesday online, for those who can't be here in person, the topic we're going to talk about is how often do we feel compelled to, to prove ourselves. We just feel this pressure that we have to prove ourselves, that we have to demonstrate that we're worth something. And sometimes that can be paralyzing and we feel like we never get ahead of it. God speaks into that based on who he is. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow night. Uh, and, and, and if you want to be there tomorrow, you do have to sign up by this afternoon so we have food for you and we have childcare covered. Um, and you have till tomorrow night to sign up for the one online. So in the book of Ephesians, Paul's writing. He's writing back to people he just spent two years with. And in the first two chapters, we've kind of already covered a couple of the shifts that Paul's talking about. In chapter 1, as Paul talked about unity in the church, that we're all a part of the body of Christ, and Jesus wants to fill everything in every way with all of himself. And he's broken down this hostility between Jews and Gentiles, and we're now one family. He says, basically, we need to shift from more effort and trying harder to shift to more Jesus in our life. We just need to focus more on the rescuer, the savior, the one who loves us. In a way, he's saying, don't focus so much on all the things you got to do. Focus more on who I am, on my identity, and who I've redeemed you to be. In the second chapter, we see Jesus is, is, or, uh, Paul is talking about what Jesus has accomplished in rescuing us, that our nature and identity have been changed. We were dead, now we're alive. This is who we used to be. This is who we are now. And then he basically says, too, that God has created each of us as a masterpiece, a masterpiece that we need to shift from thinking about ourselves as a volunteer to seeing ourselves as a masterpiece and that God has fearfully and wonderfully made us in his image and he's redeemed that image through Christ. The image of God is now redeemed. We get to be the image of God, the fullness of Jesus everywhere in every way. And we've been each uniquely designed for a masterpiece mission from God. I got to have a conversation with somebody that joins us every single week online uh, at home in our Fusion at Home campus, and uh, she mentioned that her husband, listening to that message throughout the course of the week, he keeps calling her a masterpiece. And she said, it's a good idea. You should recommend it to the other guys in the room. So there you go. There's a recommendation. If God says it, it's true. So claim it. Speak to one another as the masterpiece rather than the other words you might tend to use sometimes. So um, I want you to listen to how Paul emphasizes in chapter 3 the value of God's love for us. I think so often, you might be a follower of Jesus, you might not yet be. That's okay, we're glad you're here. We believe that, that, that the longer you pursue and look at the truths about Jesus, it's going to begin to change the way you see him, and the Holy Spirit is going to draw you to himself. But when we look at this third shift, there's something here powerful about the love of God. When we think about the love of God so often, we think about the love of God, we stop at the surface. Like, yeah, God, God is love, and he loves me, great. Do you understand that that is meant to be, by God, something we spend our whole lives diving deeper and deeper into? In Ephesians 3, Paul talks specifically about this, starting in verse 14. He says, when I think of all this, now this is a summary statement. What he's saying is, when I think of everything I wrote to you in chapter 1 about unity and and God breaking, Jesus breaking down the, 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 the wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles and all of us being one family. When I think in chapter 2 about how we've been rescued from death and we've been given new life, we're made new in Christ, that we're saved not by our works but by faith, by grace. 
And when I think about the fact that we've all been made a masterpiece, and then he, he goes in in the first part of Ephesians chapter 3, which I'm not going to read to you or refer to because we're reading it every day this week. So read Ephesians 3 this week. But, but he says, in light of all this, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your heart as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. Your roots will grow deeper and deeper into God's love to keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. And I kind of think this is Paul making a little bit of a joke. The, the, the love of God is unfathomable. It's, it's, it's immeasurable. It's unconditional. It's inexhaustible. And so he's saying, I, I, may you have, he's praying here, he even said, I pray for you, church in Ephesus, I pray for you, church in Scary County. May you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, that his love never stops, that it just keeps going and going and going. And then he continues to talk about love. In verse 19, he says, may you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to fully understand, may you experience the love of Christ that you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Now I want to make sure you get this, the significance of what God is talking about, about his love, and, and primarily his love on display through his son, and how powerfully transforming that is, how it shapes everything about us, changes everything about us. To summarize this, he's saying in these last two verses, 19 and 20, may you experience the love of Christ to such a degree that you will, you will experience that power in life all from God. And through the mighty power of his love at work in you is how he can accomplish more than all you ask or think. You know, when we think about this idea, when we've even prayed this concept, you know, God, I believe you can do immeasurably beyond everything I ask or think. Typically, we think of those miracles of like, okay, here's a relationship falling apart. God, we know you can do immeasurably beyond all we ask or think. Or we think of somebody that's sick and they're on their deathbed. You can do immeasurably beyond all we ask or think. And, and we think of these dynamic miracles of health or finances or job or relationships. But I think really when we look at the context of this and we don't just look at verse 20, what God is hope, helping us to see is that his power at work within us is directly connected to our experience of his love for us. And that when his love, when we venture deeper and deeper into his love and we experience his love, we experience all the life and power of God, the power of God that can do in us more than we ask or think. You ever had that moment where, where, where somebody that has wounded you deeply and there's just all of a sudden you experience forgiveness and you let them go from that and you wish them well? And, and, and maybe somebody else is like, how can you forgive them for that? And you're like, because I've been forgiven from so much. There's that freedom. That's immeasurably beyond what we ask or think in our human capacity. That's a miracle. Our experience and deep pursuit of his love is the power that makes impossible things possible. That's the more. We're made for more. More than we could ask or think. So I want to ask you a practical question in regards to this. What is it that motivates you to do something good or nice or kind? What does it motivate you? I mean, I, I, oftentimes I think when we have an opportunity in front of us, we're like, okay, here's the opportunity. We have a tendency to have these thoughts, well, I guess I could do it. Or, you know, maybe, maybe I'm supposed to do it. Sometimes we spiritualize it. We're like, well, I think God wants me to do it. Thanks, God. I don't really have time for this, but I guess I have to, right? 
Or sometimes we're like, well, I probably should help because I have the, I have the, the talent or skills to do it. Sometimes we think we, we're driven by what people think of us, and so we get that email, and somebody says, hey, can you help us, help us out with this? And you're just like, oh, why do they have to email me? They've emailed me three other times, and I always have an excuse to get out of it, but man, Thursday night, I don't have an excuse. Like, what am I going to say? I don't want to do it. But what are they going to think of me if I give them another excuse, and I try to get out of it? And then you turn, and you're just like, hey, honey, do we have anything going on Thursday? Is there anything we could schedule that would give me a legitimate excuse to get out of it? I mean, if we're honest, sometimes in our flesh... The opportunity we have to do something good, nice, or kind, it's driven by self. It's driven by obligation or guilt or we're supposed to do it or we have to or we want someone to think, somebody to think well of us. But not a single one of us can find a verse in the Bible where God says, hey, the greatest motivation I have for your life is guilt. Nowhere in the Bible does God say, you know what? I'm going to use guilt to motivate you to do everything in life that matters. No, Paul is unlocking in this text in chapter 3 the source of endless motivation. I mean, if you've ever been in leadership or management or anything like that, you know you've been a coach or a teacher. You've got to pump kids up. You've got to pump people up in your division or your team. You've got to keep them focused on the goal. You've got to keep fighting from all the other distractions to keep them motivated. And Paul is talking here. He's saying, he's praying. He's like, this is the, the, the never-ending motivation for all of life. He's saying, you know, children of God, God, would you help them to just drown in the ocean of how you feel about them? Would they just recognize how holy you are, how glorious you are, that they should never know you, they should never have a relationship with you, how significant your love is that you would die for us? Because that's the only fuel in the human heart that can sustain us and move us forward and and change us and transform the world. Paul's presenting this idea that when we experience deeply how profoundly loved we are in Jesus we find the one and only never-ending motivation to love other people. And it's not driven by guilt. It's not driven by obligation. It's not driven by opportunity. It's not driven by us wanting to feel good by helping somebody. But it's driven by love. Today's Compassion Sunday. It's kind of a day where love is the main idea of everything. And we're sharing with you Compassion International. It might be something that you're not familiar with, and that's okay. But, but I'm going to share with you a video here with some folks in our church family that... Um, that have made the decision to be a part of the life of a young person in another part of the world that is in poverty. Compassion International's ministry is releasing people from poverty in Jesus' name, connected to Jesus Christ. And as this video starts, here's what I want to encourage you. Don't turn off the live stream feed just yet. I know some of us are just like, great, I'm going to watch this video. It's going to have emotional music, and then I'm going to have to go out there and adopt some kid and Give them something, I'll just feel obligated, I'll feel guilty. No, no, no. That's not a motive of God's spirit. That's not how he operates within us. You are free from guilt, free from obligation, free from expectations. I mean, all of us are a combination of limitations. You can't do everything everywhere for everybody. And we all have opportunities in front of us. And so the Holy Spirit comes along to help us sift through what does he want us to say yes to? What does he want us to say no to? And so we're going to share with you an opportunity, Compassion International. And how your life can be turned upside down as you turn the life of someone else upside down through $38 a month. And if, you're, if, if you know this isn't for you, that's okay. Just sit back and marvel and thank God for the stories you're about to hear. Don't get distracted with guilt or obligation. Those aren't tools that Jesus, is, Jesus uses. Normally those are the evidence of our own insecurities bleeding out. But just sit back, listen, and celebrate these stories. 
Compassion International is working around the world to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. Hi, I'm Trevor. And um, I'm Sharon. Hi, my name is Stephanie. Barbara and Steve Anderson. Hi, we're Donna Joe and Ed Cody. Hi, we are Anita and Steve Maybauer. Hi, we're the Bears. Hi, this is Christine Binkley. Hi, this is Willa Reed. We love Jesus. We love the church. And we love children. Everything we do flows from there. Compassion builds relationships with churches who are already ministering to families living in poverty. The staff and volunteers at these churches know the needs in their community because they live there too. They see what children in their neighborhoods are facing, and they want to make a difference, just like you and I. We sponsor Eric from Rwanda. Naomi from Haiti, and she's just turned 17. Oh, this is our little girl, Akari. She is from Mexico. Gloria from Uganda. And we sponsor Christina, who lives in the Philippines. His name is Bizimana, and he's from Rwanda, Africa. Her little girl named Flor Melissa, and she is from El Salvador. We are sponsors of a young man in Mexico. His name is Elio, and he is 17 years old. Josella, and she lives in the Philippines. Together, we are a team that surrounds these children and youth. Every voice that speaks value into their lives matters. The church is vital. They are the heart of the community and messengers of the gospel. Compassion partners with more than 8,000 churches worldwide. Each church chooses a project director who is responsible for planning and overseeing a team of helpers who implement every part of the program. They are committed to helping children develop holistically as God intended. So activities at the center are designed to encourage physical, mental, social, emotional, and spiritual growth. The program is integrated, meaning the church receives support to walk with children as they grow. The thing I've loved about sponsoring children through compassion is the connection with somebody somewhere else in the world, but we can still touch their life. I think uh, our greatest delight is the fact that you know, we're helping them, not just physically, uh, but we're helping with their education, we're helping with their spiritual growth as well. We knew Jesus is at such a young age. And we delight in their artwork that they send us. Yes. Yeah. And we delight in just seeing their pictures on our refrigerator. It's like I have a sister, another sister in the part of the world. Somebody in Mexico is getting a little more faith and a little more encouragement. One of the things I love sponsoring about Christina is that I can have a friend who lives super far away. Um, her message to me um, in English, and it's so sweet to be able to communicate with someone so far away. Allows me to find out how they're doing in another country, um, what they use the money for, um, their walk with God, and that they're teaching about God um, through your sponsorship. And it's the opportunity to have conversations with our daughters about how different the lives are of, of kids their age in other parts of the world. And we intentionally 
picked a little girl, because we have three girls, that was around the same age as our girls. As Christina gets older, they get to see new pictures, and we get to share the letters back and forth of what life is like in the Philippines. Just to hear the letters where he writes um, from heartfelt gratitude about our support for him. And the best part is just knowing that there is an impact not only on his life, our life is changed and been impacted tremendously. His family's life is impacted and so is his community. Our, our family and me could give her like things that they need. It's just great knowing that for so little, we can help somebody so much. When children in the program face urgent medical needs or their communities are affected by disaster, the church responds. During the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic, church partners around the world delivered food to the families who could not work during the quarantine. Compassion provides encouragement and financial support so our church partners can be salt and light during these critical times. Interventions like these, and in fact, all community activities vary from church to church because children face unique challenges in each community. Super awesome. Super duper cool. <laughs> awesome. Joyful. It would be awesome. It's a blessing for me. Oh boy. It's a valuable commitment. It's an awesome, awesome thing. It's satisfying, gratifying. It's joyful. Um, it's, it's just, um, uh, that's more than one word. What would be your one word? Joyful. Joyful. It's great. <laughs> we invite you to join these churches as they help children become all that God created them to be. Thank you so much for coming to see our project. God bless you all. In Ephesians 3, God wants us to understand that love, His love for us, is to be the motivator in all things. That we're not to be motivated by, by money or by pleasure. Uh, we're not to be motivated by the appetites of our flesh and temptations. We're not to be motivated by what we want for ourselves. And we're not to be motivated by guilt. We don't need more guilt reminding us that we fall short. We need more of his love that reminds us we've already been redeemed. We've already been rescued. And he's restored us. And this is tough because a lot of us carry around guilt in a subconscious way in our lives. And I want to give you some indicators that you might be motivated by guilt more often than you'd like to admit. Here's some thoughts you have. Do you have a hard time forgiving yourself? Maybe for something that just happened yesterday. Maybe for something that happened decades ago. You just still carry around guilt. Do you apologize for things you had very little to do with? Just kind of assuming you're at fault. Do you worry about being a disappointment to other people? You're expecting to fall short. You're expecting to be guilty of that. Are you in a pattern of self-punishment? Maybe it's with food or with alcohol or with drug use. You're kind of beating yourself up because you feel you don't deserve better, so you poison yourself. Do you avoid people that you feel you've wronged because you, just, you don't have the confidence to look them in the eye because you feel guilty as a disappointment? Do you take blame for things that have went wrong in your life or the life of someone you love, and you jump back maybe even decades and say, I think this was my fault? I wish I could change it, but I can't go back there and change that. And you carry that guilt forward. If any of these statements resonate with you, if they're just passive subconscious thoughts you have, please hear me. As you experience the love of God deeper and deeper, guilt cannot remain any longer. 
in the cross, your sin is atoned for. And so is the guilt associated with your standing before God. You are no longer guilty. You're exonerated from any accusation. You've been released from condemnation. You're set free from the penalties of your failures. Jesus was nailed to the cross because of the Father's love for you. Yes, he loved the whole world. It's easy, I think, for us to wrap our minds around, yeah, God is love and he loves the whole world. Do you believe? Not just know. Are you not just aware of it? Do you personally believe that God loves you right where you are? Not because you deserve it, but because it's who he is and because of who you are as his child. You matter to him. When we live under the weight of God's love, the best definition of the word glory is weight. So God's, God's love is glorious. When we live under the glory of God's love, when we live our lives under the weight of God's love, do you know what it squeezes out of us? All guilt and all shame. It's squeezed out of us. And then, under that glory of his love, the weight of his love, we, he can do through us immeasurably more than all we ask or think. And that doesn't matter how old we are. And it also doesn't matter how young we are. Take a look at this story of a little six-year-old girl motivated by God's love for others in a way that caused her to come up with something just for the sake of what little she had to offer that could be used in a way to make a difference in someone else's life. How love motivated her to do something amazing. God wants us to help other kids so we can make a difference so that people in other countries have exactly all that they need. This is our story of sponsoring a child with compassion. So let's start off with compassion. Compassion is a thing that helps other kids develop and get what they need and stuff. And the Bible is pretty clear that generosity is not about how much you have, it's about what you do with what you have. I remember our pastor at our church sharing about how if you don't have to walk to work every day and you have a car, like you are like one of the wealthiest people in the world. That perspective made me realize how much I really have. And I realized that it was really important that we start being generous. You know, we wanted to sponsor a child, and so we looked with Evie and picked out a, a child whose birthday was, was kind of close to hers, so they were around the same age, and, and it was a girl also, and her name is Marabella, and she's from the Philippines. Um, Marabella is six. She likes singing. She also likes drawing, I think. Understanding the concept of poverty isn't personal until you put a face to it. And compassion put a face to poverty and a child's name to poverty. And um, it became this huge concept that's just out there somewhere and gave us an actual person to impact. So they, so Mirabelle's year was like they had hurricanes. Hurricanes over there, typhoons over there. It made me want to help them because when I think about things that I didn't really like or times where it was hard. I think about poverty and how hard poverty would be. And I, and I thought, 
I wonder how these people feel. I was in the kitchen and Evie woke up and came in the kitchen and she, she literally walked out of her bedroom with this idea pretty much fully formed to the degree that she shared with me, Dad, I had this idea that um, I, could, I could draw pictures, me and my friends could draw pictures and then people could buy the pictures for a dollar and then we could send that money to people who are poor. I hoped that it would make a difference that and make enough art to raise $500. You know, she came out of her bedroom thinking about someone else, which is huge for a child to do, and then thinking, what do I have? What, what ability, what assets do I have that I can use to make a difference? So, you know, we thought that getting involved with Compassion, sponsoring a child, we were going to be making a difference. And what we found is that through, through that, Compassion has given us um, a story and this purpose. Well, God wants us to do our gifts because He wants to make the world a better place and a better place for other people. Um, we don't consider ourselves as having very much, but um, because we had this uh, priority, both of, of the type of family we wanted to be, the type of people we wanted to be as followers of Jesus, as parents. Um, Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's gonna be. And so um, you have to move your treasure around to put your heart in the right place. As people are thinking about whether to sponsor a child, I want to tell everybody, like, do it. Like, it's gonna change your life. Like, you need to do it. So the blue is the sad kid because he doesn't have enough of what he needs. They need food, water, and medical service, and shelter. And the yellow is the happy kid because he has enough of what he needs, and he's been sponsored. We can all show kids the love of Jesus, sponsor a child, and make a difference. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. You're like, oh, man, that girl's so cute. i got to go sponsor 11 kids out there. Man. How am I going to get out of here without doing that, right? No, guilt is not a motivation for anything that God desires of us. We're all a combination of limitations. We're all limited, not only with, with financial resources, but time and energy. We can't do everything for all people everywhere. But there is one thing God's calling us to do. What's that next step in your life? Maybe very simply, the challenge for you this week is, you know what? I want to live this week successful in my own home. I want the people that know me best to like me the most rather than take them for granted. Maybe you'd say, you know what, I think God's called me to consider a child, to just kick it around this week. The table will be out there again next Sunday. This morning, I actually sent an email out at around 9 a.m. if you're signed up for mass emails. Uh, for those of you at home, for all of us, you can click on a link and it'll show you kids from around the world of varying ages, you know, some with just a couple of years left in the program, some that are, you know, uh, toddlers that have a whole life in front of them, and, and you can take on that kind of commitment if you want to, but you can just browse kids from around the world that are in desperate need of someone to love them in a practical way. There's also a link there into something really cool. There's going to be a preview screen here <coughs> beside me uh, that's an online interactive experience to look at the world through the eyes of poverty, through a little girl named Patience who lives in Uganda. Uh, the link went active today. It's good for 10 days. And the challenge is for you as a family, with whoever's in your family, to sit down. You click on different things. You ask different questions. You answer questions. And it's a unique experience every time you do it to look at the world through the eyes of this little girl. The, the bottom line here is don't, don't act or react based on guilt. 
But wait for God to show you. Let his love so fill you and drown you in his affection for you that then you have power of his spirit at work within you to be a part of things beyond what you could ask or imagine. Every single person that's taken this step over the last five years we've been offering Compassion International Sunday, every single one has been just blown away by the experience and the way it's impacted and shaped them. It might be the next step in your spiritual life. Ask God how he would have you respond because of his love for you. If you're here in the room, you can stop by the table out in the foyer and you can uh, see some of the kids that are left still on the table with physical packets you can look at. Uh, But all of us can also click on that link to to view those online as well and and make those decisions there. Um, Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just ask your Holy Spirit to lead us into the next step you have for us in our spiritual journey. Uh, And we marvel at how you lead us. We want to hear your voice. We want to sense the direction of your spirit. Well, hey, I hope you get a sense of Ephesians chapter 3 and just the emphasis Paul has on the love of God and how living in the love of God and growing deeper in the love of God, our roots growing down, our foundation on God's love and how that's connected to him doing increasingly and abundantly more than all we can ask or think. Like this whole chapter is about love. And so often, how often do we just kind of do stuff out of guilt, out of obligation, out of well, we're supposed to. And, and God wants our motive to be to be love. And, and I want that to be your motive today too, as we've talked about Compassion International Sunday. Um, this may not be a next step for you, but it might be something, would you have the courage to say, God, is this something you may be calling me to? Is this the next step in my walk with you to take a few of my resources, $38 a month, and make a life-changing impact in the life of a young person? Uh, right on the app, on the home screen, there's a few links. If you click on that Compassion Sunday logo, you'll get a few links. You can see that the different children around the world that are available for sponsorship. Uh, I also really strongly encourage you to take the interactive journey to walk through the eyes of a little girl named Patience in Africa. It's about a 20 or 25 minute thing. Invite your whole family to sit down and do it on the big screen together. Uh, and and, and uh, just just experience life through her eyes. Look at the world through her eyes and uh, just see what, what God begins to do in you from a place of love, not guilt. We don't want guilt to be a motivator. Hey, I wanna pray with you before we go and just kind of pray that, that you have a sense of, of greater love for people you come into contact with this week. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the today. We thank you for this incredible book in the Bible that the Apostle Paul wrote while in a prison. While, while he was kind of stranded, he penned this incredible, incredible directive for the church, not only in Ephesus, but for us 2,000 years later. And, and God, in this chapter, it's just drenched in the idea of your love for us and how powerful and transforming your love is when we allow it to grow deeper and when we allow ourselves to grow deeper and deeper in the understanding and the experience of who you are. Uh, God, may we live that kind of love in light of the people in our world this week, not only within our own home, may it start in our own home with love and grace, but God, may it transcend that to every to our workplace, to our school, to people we come into contact with that are complete strangers. May your love be on display through us because it has the power to transform lives. And God, would you give clarity to the next step you have for each person to take in response to Compassion Sunday today. In your awesome name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks again for joining us. Hope you have an awesome blessed week as the temperature continues to get just a little bit warmer, a little more sunlight. Uh, as we move into the month of May, and we look forward to seeing you here next Sunday.